0: Thank you for being here. We are moving on to a new subject in our study of the Bible. As you know, we continue to move through the New Testament. We're moving on from the book of Acts, and now we come to the epistles. Now, this is a critical part of the Bible for us. Of course, all the Bible is important, but the epistles especially. When we look at the Gospels, that is the four Gospels we have in the New Testament, we have the life of Christ portrayed to us. We see the words of Christ, the works of Christ. We are to believe in Christ because of that. And then when we come to the book of Acts, we see a number of examples. We see the Lord's promises, the Lord's truths in action, and those are meant to encourage us. But it's in the epistles that we receive the specific instruction. Yes, there is instruction interspersed in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts. But it is mainly in the epistles where we are given the instruction of how we are to live as Christians. So this is an important part of the Bible that we are now coming to. What I want to do in today's class is going to be a little different than what we normally do. I want to introduce us to the epistles. I want to overview this genre, this biblical genre, and its main purpose. I want to consider the different categories of epistles that appear in our Bible. And then I want us to go through a little tour of Paul's epistles. Uh, Paul's epistles and the purposes of each one of those epistles. One of the things I really enjoyed coming to seminary, one of the things I encountered in my classes was just a a survey or specific uh, look at each book of the Bible, understanding where it was written, when it was written, what its main purpose was, and, and other information. That I think is really helpful for orienting us to the totality of what the Bible says And when we pursue those books uh, on a a more intense level, as we look at them more specifically, we we are informed so that we can actually, uh, we can see how the different pieces of the book fit together to accomplish that, that primary purpose for which it was written. So I want to hopefully give you that same experience today, something like that. I'd like to introduce you to each one of Paul's epistles. We'll just briefly consider each. We'll look at some sample verses in each one. So today's class is going to be more informational than exhortational, where we, you know, that we normally do the observe, interpret, apply as we go through specific passages. It's going to be a little different than that today, but we've got 13 epistles to go through. So um, it's definitely going to be something that you're going to, you're going to want to stay right with me so that you don't miss anything. Let's pray before we continue. Our Lord and God, we thank you for these these epistles, God, these these words that you caused your uh, apostles to speak so that we might know, not only the ancient ancient Christians, God, but so that we today might know how we are to live, how we can glorify you, follow you, stand up uh, uh, amid these persecutions and sufferings of life. So God, I pray that you help me to be able to explain this now and as the people at Calvary and those listening encounter these different messages and the different circumstances of the believers, I, I hope, God, that he would impart on them that what they were experiencing are the same kinds of things that we experience today, and we need this word. Lord, I pray that you bless this time. Amen. All right. Let's start with our overview. What is an epistle? You can ask that question. What's an epistle? It's a letter. It's just another word for letter. Actually, that word comes straight from the Greek, epistole, and it does mean a letter. There are some things that we should know about these letters, these epistles. These were personally delivered messages. There was no postal service at this time, except for government correspondence. So if you wanted to send a message to somebody, you had to actually commission a messenger to go and bring it to that person. And that's what these epistles are. These are hand-delivered, personally delivered messages. They're often written down by dictation to an amanuensis, basically a secretary. So Paul or another one of the apostles would say what he wanted to have written. Someone else would write it down. And we even see that in the Bible. Romans 16.22, one of those secretaries actually says something. Romans 16.22, we have, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So in a sense, we say, who wrote the epistles of the New Testament? In a physical sense, sometimes it's not the apostles, but in a real sense, it is the apostles speaking through these secretaries. But it looks like that these that the apostles, like Paul, would often sign their letters in their own distinctive hand, which is why, probably, we have what's written in Galatians 6.11. Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Of course, that'd be important that they would be able to validate these letters as truly coming from them. Now, like letters today, there's a certain distinctive structure to letters. There's an opening where you introduce yourself. Uh, you might give greetings to, to the ones you're speaking to. There's the main body of the letter. And then there's a closing where there's often another set of greetings and a, and a final farewell. We do see that form or that kind of form with these letters. But unlike so many letters today this is not merely these letters in the new testament are not merely a bunch of personal updates but they are actually teaching documents they are vehicles for presenting arguments to instruct and to equip believers in the church in those days now the books we've already looked at of course in the old testament but even in the new testament the gospels the book of acts they are also presenting arguments but a little more indirect The epistles are very much, they're much more obviously arguments, more upfront with presenting a coherent set of ideas where you can detect the flow of thought. There's a discernible structure, and it's meant to persuade the listeners to believe or act in a certain way. And these letters are often written with very specific situations in mind. Sometimes you might hear the term describing the epistles or even the the books of the Bible, that they are occasional. That doesn't mean that they were written every now and then, but they were written in response to a certain occasion. And we see that definitely with the epistles. Often it's with a specific situation in mind that these epistles are written. Another important thing for us to realize about the epistles is that the application is most direct compared to some of the other scriptures. When we look at the Gospels, look at the Acts or look at acts, it's not always a one-to-one application. Somebody in the text does something that doesn't necessarily mean that you should do it too. Like the rich young ruler, Jesus told him, you got to sell everything if you want to come follow me. Should every believer do that? Every believer should be willing to do that, but that was something specific for that man. Or in the book of Acts, where it says that seven deacons were appointed to take care of the widows, or seven servants, some people do interpret them as deacons, uh, to take care of these certain widows at a certain time. Does that mean that every church needs to appoint seven men or, or a group of men to take specifically take care of the widows? Well, we do see receive some instruction in the epistles, but it's not exactly the same. So there is there's a little bit of a difference there. But again, with the epistles, it's much more direct. We are told specifically to hold to the instructions given in the epistles. It's kind of like the difference between the um, the Torah in the Old Testament, the commands for Israel, and then the narrative of the events, like in the histories. Yes, you receive instruction through the histories like 1 Kings, 1 Samuel, those things like that. But what you're specifically told to hold to in the Old Testament is what is expressed in the law. And it's somewhat similar when it comes to the epistles. What we are specifically told to hold to comes mostly through the epistles. For example, 1 Corinthians 11.2. 1 Corinthians 11.2 Paul says to that church, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.15, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul again says, so then brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by a letter from us. Now, when we're talking about traditions in these contexts, we're not talking about man-made traditions. We're talking about the teaching of the apostles, the, the teaching of Christ as passed on by the apostles. He says, Hold to these things. Or we can hear even from Peter in his letter, one of his letters, 2 Peter 3 1 to 2. 2 Peter 3 1 to 2, Peter says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I'm stirring you up, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by a way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now, this really goes back to the Great Commission, right? Jesus didn't just say, make disciples, but part of that process is teaching them to observe all that he commanded us. And that's what we receive in the epistles. We're getting that teaching of how to observe the commandments of Jesus via his apostolic representatives. Now, this is not to say that everything in the epistles is uh, to be applied on a one-to-one basis for us. Sometimes the context of the epistles will make clear that something was cultural or unique to that time. Like the teaching we have in 1 Corinthians about speaking in tongues. Or the, the frequent appearance of a command to greet one another with a kiss of love. Or the, another aspect expressed in 1 Corinthians, the idea of these love feasts, which is kind of like a, an extended version of the Lord's Supper, where people actually had a full meal together. These are some things that were unique to that time. And uh, we can see from the immediate and the, the larger context of the Bible that these were not things, uh, these were not commands for the church necessarily to practice throughout all time. So there are some There are some things like that in the epistles, but we're always, even in those things, looking for the abiding principles. When it comes to the teaching of tongues, we can see that there's application about confusion in the church and what is truly edifying. But when it comes to the teaching about greeting with a kiss of love, we can see that true affection is to be expressed often and appropriately in the church for one another. Or when it comes to an instruction about these, these extended Lord's suppers, these love feasts, we are to see that true fellowship is something the church is called to, considering one another, spending time with one another, even eating with one another, but soberly and considerately. So hopefully you're seeing as I'm explaining these things the overview that this is a very important sector of scriptures for us. We want to learn from the epistles how we are to live as Christians. What we should be thinking? What should we be believing What should we be loving? What should we hate? What do we say? And what do we do? We need to listen to these letters. Now, not every specific situation of life is covered in the letters. I mean, it was written in ancient times. How could they know everything that would happen in the modern era? But the principles are given, even in those ancient days, that make us that we're completely prepared and equipped for whatever we encounter today. 2 Peter 1.3 says, 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So we can't say, well, you know, there's a lot of instruction here, but nothing that helps me for this situation. The specifics might not be there, but the principles will be. And a lot of times the specifics are there. And 2 Timothy 3.16-17 speaks similarly 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, very familiar passage to you. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or complete or perfect, equipped for every good work. So from these epistles and from the, the scriptures in general, we are ready, or we are to become ready for any situation of life. Now, we've seen an overview of what the epistles are. Let's talk about some of the categories that emerge when we talk about the epistles. And then when it comes to the New Testament, you basically have two large groups to consider. There's the Pauline epistles, the epistles written by Paul. He wrote most of them. And then the non-Pauline epistles, which are often called the Catholic or the general epistles. Now, we're not talking about Roman Catholic. Just mean Catholic in the sense of universal. That was the more ancient meaning of the term. These non-Pauline books—they're frequently not um, mentioned as going to a, a specific place, but to believers in a large area or everywhere. Whereas Paul's letters are more oftentimes specific. And so the Catholic or the general epistles would be books like James, First and Second Peter, First and Second Third John, Jude, and perhaps Hebrews. Now the Pauline group can be further subdivided. Usually only hear the, the latter two categories, but you, we, we can use four categories in total: the early epistles, the major epistles, the prison epistles, and you can figure out why they're called the prison epistles. And then the pastoral epistles. Now, if you see, as you see on the screen, which books are listed in each category, uh, you can maybe see why the categories are broken down as they are. But one I will ask you about why are they called pastoral epistles? Why do you think? Well, they are written for the churches, and in fact, most of these are, so it's not specifically that. Uh, Can you say that again? Right, so these are written to church leaders. I'll probably, I'm will i going to avoid the term pastor because we're going to see the that Timothy and Titus are a little bit more than that. They're actually apostolic representatives, and so they have a, a special degree of authority. But there's something like this sense of pastor. These are leaders who are intent or who are ch- commissioned to be taking care of the church. And the letters specifically directed to them, they are called the pastoral epistles. And that makes sense. Now, I mentioned Hebrews. Why... Is, What about Hebrews? Is it Pauline or is it a general epistle? Well, many in the early church thought that Hebrews was actually written by Paul. And there was some debate about it, even at that time. And the conclusion seems to have been that if it wasn't written by Paul, then it was written by an associate of Paul. That's the reason why it's included in our scriptures. There's still a debate today about who the author of Hebrews actually is. And it's pretty hard to come to a conclusion. But for today's lesson... I'm not going to be considering Hebrews a letter of Paul, though it quite possibly could have been. Now, why were, these written, why were these letters written? Well, think about it, especially these Pauline letters. We've got new Christians dotting the eastern Mediterranean in various cities, new churches. Are the apostles just going to leave them all by themselves? Derelict? No, these new Christians need help. They need instruction. They need strengthening. And not just in person, but even when the apostles are away. Now, the Apostle Paul, he loved these churches. He loved the people in them. He was concerned for them. And he felt charged by God to continue to build them up. And therefore, he writes letters to them. And we sometimes have the, uh, the impression of Paul that he's just the guy that converts people. He goes to a new area, shares the gospel, converts people, and then just leaves. No, he's, even as we saw in Acts, he's constantly revisiting the churches he established and writing letters to them. And many of those have become our scripture. And many of them are our scripture. What we see in the epistles is basically the, the, the categories of a, a benefit are the same as they are in all the scriptures. In the epistles, we see instruction, teaching, we see reproof, we see correction, we see training in righteousness. And this is all meant to make the believers complete, adequate, equipped for all that they will encounter as Christians in life. Now, I think I said obliquely already, but there are some letters that Paul wrote that are not included in the Bible. They haven't survived. I'm sure that they were helpful when they were originally written, but they were not inspired. They were not inerrant like these letters, and God saw fit to preserve these for us. So we've seen an overview of the letters. We've seen the categories of the various letters. Let's now take a look at each of the 13 Pauline letters. I basically want to discuss with you is when and where were these letters written? And we'll have some sense of this already from our study in Acts. For whom were they written? And then what was each letter's main message or purpose? Now, some qualifications I should give when it comes to this tour we're about to conduct. First of all, I'm not going to be debating whether any of these things were really written by Paul. There's There's ample evidence to believe that they were, but if you happen to look at any liberal commentator or scholar today, you'll know that plenty of these letters are debated as to whether they really are written by Paul. But if you look at their arguments, they're actually simultaneously hilarious, sad, and maddening. Because they they base a lot of their arguments, oh, this couldn't have been written by Paul because the theology is way too developed. All these speculations that are, that are totally unfounded and just really examples of eisegesis. But I'm just going to I'm not going to really be talking about that. These are all lit- written by Paul. I'm not going to, um, enter into debate about any of those things. Another thing I should mention as we, as we go through this tour is that this is my view. I'm presenting my view of what I think the purpose is and, uh, the situation of each one of these letters are good. Godly men will take slightly different perspectives than what I present to you today, but I'm just giving you my view as I understand it from my own study and what, of what I've learned so far. And, uh, no, those differences are not going to be super uh, super critical in the grand scheme of things, so you don't have to worry about that. I should mention, though, uh, along those lines, many of the purposes of the, of the letters are debated in terms of what is the main purpose of Romans, for example, or uh, Ephesians. So there's going to be some, some different views, even among um, conservative evangelicals today. And indeed, there is more than one purpose for the various books in the New Testament, But we want to settle on what's the main purpose? What is driving this whole letter? That's what I want to talk to you about. And one last thing, just to review the chronology of Paul's life. Even here, speaking of different perspectives, some people might put these dates a little differently than what I'm displaying to you right now. In fact, Answers in Genesis has the dates, I think, a little bit earlier, and uh, other, other good resources have them a little bit later. But generally, we can see the flow of events In history, as they're presented in the scriptures. For Paul, he uh, is converted soon after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus rises again in 30 AD or around 30 AD. Paul's converted in 32. He goes to Jerusalem for the first time in 35. Remember, that's three years after he's converted. The The church at Antioch, where he spends much of his time, is founded in 41 or 42. He goes on his first missionary journey towards the latter half, the 40s, that for 47 to 49. Soon afterwards is the Jerusalem Council. Then his second missionary journey follows not long after that, 50 to 52. About third missionary journey, 53 to 56. His first imprisonment, uh, coming on the heels of his third missionary journey, 56 to 61 or 62. One of those one of those years that he was released. A final short section of additional travel and additional ministry from 62 to 65, and then his second imprisonment and his martyrdom in somewhere between 65 and 67 AD. So keep that in mind. We're going to move chronologically through the letters rather than how they're they're, uh, put together in our Bibles. Do remember that the order of the books in our Bibles is meant to be helpful, but it's not inspired. So... The fact that Romans appears after the book of Acts is, uh, is not, not inspired. That's just meant to be helpful when, when somebody organized it with time. We're actually not going to start with Romans, even though that's where our Bibles start in presenting, the Paul's, uh, presenting Paul's letters. We are going to start with Galatians. Let's now look at each one of these epistles. Galatians. When was it written? Well, it has to be written after Paul's first missionary journey. Probably sometime around the Jerusalem Council, since the same issues that that council were, was dealing with were dealt with in this letter. There's no specific mention or appeal to the Jerusalem Council in the letter of Galatians. So I tend to think that this letter was published or sent before the Jerusalem Council. So after the first missionary journey and before the Jerusalem Council. Now, some good men take it a little bit later, around 55 or 56 AD. Um, But I think it makes more sense to go before. This would mean that Paul is writing from Antioch before he sets out on his second missionary journey. And to whom is he writing? The churches of Galatia. Now, you should be familiar by now where Galatia is and what's Paul's relation to Galatia. You can even see on the map, Galatia is a central section of Asia Minor, Turkey today. Paul had a connection to this region. It's where he went. On his first missionary journey at least the southern part of galatia and that would have included such cities as city antioch iconium lystra and derby and this is a gentile territory we've got roman colonists we've got greeks we've got hellenized celts we've got other indigenous peoples to anatolia and we've got some jews they make up these various churches of galatia and these are young churches this is very soon after paul had been there to Give them the gospel for the first time. But since Paul, soon after Paul had established these churches, there were some teachers that went out. Some Jewish Christians who went around teaching these new Gentile converts that they needed to keep the law of Moses if they were going to please God and be saved. Paul writes the letter to the Galatian churches in response to that. What's the purpose of Galatians? I've captured it this way. It is to return the churches of Galatia, to the true gospel of salvation by faith against the polluted gospel of the Judaizers, these false teachers. Now let me just show you a couple of example passages that correspond with what I'm sharing with you. Open your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. Galatians 1, verse 6 to 8. And we see something very striking right at the beginning of the letter that shows you what kind of letter we're dealing with. Galatians 1, chapter, 6, or chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Normally, Paul starts his letters with a thanksgiving based on the people he's talking to, but he doesn't in Galatians. Look what he says instead. Verse six, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So right at the beginning of the letter, you can see that there's something serious going on with the gospel, and Paul's not going to pull any punches when it comes to that. He doesn't even have time to give thanks for this church. There's something so dire happening in the churches of Galatia. And you can see this theme continue on in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, Paul says, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You can hear Paul's tone in these, these writings. He is filled with passion, and you can even say he's angry. He's frustrated, not necessarily with with the people themselves, but with this tampering with the gospel. And he is extremely concerned that the people would go along with a perversion of the gospel. And he he wants them to see how serious it is. But when we come to the end of the letter, look at chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, or really just 13. Paul does make clear, even as he clarifies that that salvation is by faith and not by works, it is nonetheless a salvation that does not lead to a sinful life, but one where you do actually pursue good works and you are sanctified. Look what he says in chapter 5, verse 13. He tells them, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another course this is an extremely important book for for us even today as there's a continued effort from those within the church and those outside the church to per, uh, to pollute the gospel by making works necessary for salvation or by adding man's traditions to the gospel and of course we see that in things like the catholic church or those who want to bring back the old testament into the christian life and other various works religions this letter was so So important to the Reformation, even Martin Luther considered Galatians his favorite letter. But we need to move on. Galatians is our first letter, or I would argue the first letter we have from the New Testament from Paul. Next letter we see are the the next two letters we see are those given to the Thessalonians. Now, for the date of this letter, we are in Paul's second missionary journey. That's when he was going through. Macedonia and Greece. And he writes these, these two letters from Corinth. Remember, Paul was in Corinth for an extended period of time. He had just been in Thessalonica, though, and he sends some letters back to them. Who were his recipients? Was the primary Gentile church, at, primarily Gentile church at Thessalonica. And this is in Macedonia. Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Very important city. But the believers there were quite young, less than two years old. In the faith and the Thessalonians had become concerned about Paul because even when Paul first brought the gospel to them he was suffering he was driven out of the city of Berea he was forced to go to Athens they were concerned about him and his suffering and they also had become confused about some aspects relating to what happens to believers when they die and and Christ's return so Paul writes this letter to them 1st Thessalonians what's this book about what's the purpose of 1st Thessalonians I would say It's to exhort the Thessalonians to persevere through their suffering and live holy lives in light of the Lord's soon return. Let me show you some passages along these lines. Look at Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. So you have to go forward in your Bible just a little bit. Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. In the beginning of the letter, he talks a lot about how he suffered to bring them the gospel and then how they suffered as they received the gospel. But he says, this is a good thing. This shows you belong to the Lord. He he says in verse six, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So he acknowledges their suffering. He even brings it back to mind in this letter. But then look at chapter four. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. We can see some of the specific issues that they were wondering about or struggling with being addressed by Paul. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest do who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. We don't know the exact nature of their confusion at the church, but it seems to be that some were suggesting in the church that those who had died would miss out on, on Christ's glorious return. But Paul clarifies no, those who have died, they are going to be part of that as well. And they are currently with the Lord. He goes on in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2 to further clarify eschatology when he says, No, as to the times and the epics, brethren. You have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And he goes on to clarify more about Jesus' coming. What's really interesting, well, actually, I'll come back to this point. Note this emphasis on eschatology in 1 Thessalonians when we consider 2 Thessalonians. I'll say more about the two letters in just a second. 2 Thessalonians is written very closely after 1 Thessalonians. This is still why Paul's on his second missionary journey, still why he's in Corinth. And the purpose of the book is very similar to the first. Paul writes to correct an eschatological misunderstanding and exhort the believers to, again, persevere in faithfulness to Christ until Christ comes. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are sometimes referred to as Paul's eschatological letters, because they are particularly concerned with Jesus' coming. Let me show you how this appears in the second letter. Look at chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So what apparently was going around in the church of Thessalonica? Someone was saying that Jesus had already come, the second coming had already happened, and they missed it. Now he goes on to clarify, no, 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 no that that didn't happen. In fact, you know that you haven't missed it because these other things haven't happened. Other things that we told you would happen. so there's the clarification when it comes to eschatology. But then there's the continued ramifications of that uh, clarification in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 6, and then uh, we'll look at a couple others. But notice what he says in verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. i jump down to verse 11 and 13. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Something that definitely comes through from these two letters is that there is a strong link between your proper eschatological understanding and your proper motivation and perseverance in living holy for Christ. We can never push eschatology or the truth about the the coming of the Lord aside and say, oh, that's not important Or it doesn't matter if I misunderstand that. No, Paul says, actually, you need to understand that if you're going to persevere until Christ comes. And we see that even from these first two letters uh, to Thessalonica. But let's keep moving. Our next letter to consider is 1 Corinthians. This one comes in Paul's third missionary journey. This is when he spends most of his time in Ephesus, but also revisits many of the churches. He's writing from Ephesus. And he writes to this primarily Gentile church in Corinth. Now, Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. So that would be um, the lower part of Greece today. Very important trade center, very important city. But again, another city of new believers. This church was established in Paul's second missionary journey. Now, they had previously received a letter from Paul with some instruction. We don't have that first letter. It's not scripture. They'd also written Paul a letter back with some questions for Paul. But while they sent this letter, Paul also received reports about some very concerning issues that were going on in the church at Corinth, These some issues that weren't even mentioned in their letter. So with this in mind, Paul writes a letter back to them. What's 1 Corinthians about? What's its purpose? It's a, primarily a letter of correction, correcting the church's errors, answering questions, and in, in total, directing the believers to humble unity through love of Christ, instead of selfish arrogance. We can see this in some example passages. Look at 1 Corinthians, so back up a little bit in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. And there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. That's interesting. Paul does not begin his letter by addressing their questions, but what appears to be addressing the more important, the more serious issues in the church. And the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians are about the disunity. You are arrogantly dividing yourselves from one another. We see a second serious issue in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Paul has to address and correct another issue. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, as someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. What's this second serious issue? Well, this ongoing immorality in the church, there's no church discipline, no no, uh, removing this man from fellowship, this unrepentant man. And Paul says, you've got to address that. But he also deals with the things that they ask him about. Chapter 7, verse 1, we see a transition in the book where he says, now concerning the things which you wrote, and he deals with various other issues, marriage, eating things sacrificed to idols, uh, behavior when it comes to celebrating the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and though he deals with those different issues, you can see what's underlying Paul's answer to each one of these things in chapter 13, verse 4. He says a lot about how they're to act in certain areas, but then you see the underlying principle in this very famous section of 1 Corinthians, the love section. In chapter 13, verse 4, he says, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. If you look at First Corinthians, you, you keep seeing the word arrogant, boasting, boastful throughout the book. And Paul is reminding them look, your, your fundamental problem, and it's showing up in all these different areas, is your pride. But let me show you the way of Christ. The way of Christ is humble love that results in a unity in the church. And that's what I want you to have. So Paul sends this letter of correction and uh, instruction to the church. But how did they receive it? Well, let's look now at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is written to the same body. A little bit later in Paul's third missionary journey, he's moved on from Ephesus at this point and is traveling through Macedonia, on his way to Corinth, actually. He's perhaps in Philippi when he writes this. But some things have happened since the first, um, since the letter to Corinthians that we know as 1 Corinthians. Paul visited the city of Corinth and the church there after he wrote the letter, and the visit didn't go well. It was a very painful visit. Someone in the church was apparently leading an anti-Paul movement and leading the church to resist the apostle and his instruction. So when Paul left after this painful visit, he wrote a severe letter to them. And this letter also is not part of our Bible, but I'm sure it was very important at that time. And in this letter, Paul rebukes the church. He calls out this man who was leading opposition against him. He exhorts them to repent, but he also affirms his love for the church. As a result of receiving this very difficult letter from Paul, the church does repent, and they rebuke this opposition leader to Paul. Titus, Paul's companion, brings the news of the church's repentance back to Paul, and that's when he decides to write and send this letter, 2 Corinthians. What's 2 Corinthians about? I write the purpose this way. It is to affirm Paul's renewed fellowship with the church at Corinth, but also to provide a final defense of himself and his ministry to those still opposing him in the church. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-8, we see an example of this recon- reconciliation aspect of the letter. 2 Corinthians 2, 5-8, two, Paul says, But if any has caused sorrow has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive fo- sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Who's Paul talking about here? Now, this apparently was the leader who was fomenting opposition to Paul. This man repented. He had been rebuked and confronted by the church. But Paul needs to tell the church now, well, don't treat him as an outsider. Reaffirm him. Bring him back into the fellowship. Forgive him. And when you do that, I'll forgive him too. I'll accept him. There's no reason to hold a grudge. But there's a continued need for Paul to defend himself. And we see that, uh, defend himself in his ministry. And we see that throughout the letter. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 21 to 23. I want to show you some verses here. This is in the midst of one of his avenues of defense. And he's speaking here about credentials. Because that was apparently one of the things these competing leaders would bring forward, that they had all these credentials. But Paul says, starting in verse 21, chapter 11. Uh, Do I have the right spot here? Yes, okay, so mid part of that that verse. But in whatever respect, anyone else is bold. I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Paul is Part of his defense, he's sarcastically putting his own credentials in comparison to these wannabe apostles. But he's going to go on to say, look, these external things are not important. Uh, It's really about um, the message that I bring you. Am I uh, a a true apostle? Do I hold to the true gospel? Have I ever deviated from that? And he shows them that he hasn't and that they are therefore to accept him just as he desires to accept them. Now, moving on, one of the most important letters of Paul, or at least the most famous, is the letter to the Romans. Now, this comes from this comes from later on in Paul's third missionary journey. He writes those two letters to the Corinthians on his way to Corinth. But when he arrives in Corinth, it's apparently a a good visit. And while he's there, he writes this letter to the Romans. Now, there was a church at Rome, another predominantly Gentile church, but this church was not founded by Paul. He had not been there yet. There's no indication of who actually was the one who started it or what, what groups of people went there. It's mostly Gentile Church, but some Jews present too. Of course, you know, Rome was the most important city in the Mediterranean world at that time. Probably a million people living there from all over the empire, every ethnicity and social class. But Paul didn't really have any interaction with the people of Rome. And they may, some of them may have known him or heard about him, but the church as a whole did not know about Paul or was not familiar with Paul. And so he writes this letter. Now, what is the purpose of Romans? And this is one that there's a lot of debate about. Clearly, this book is well known and deservedly so for its explanation of salvation. A whole 12 chapters just describing Paul's theology of salvation. But why? Is Paul trying to win converts? Well, probably not, because he's writing to Christians. Is he trying to set the church right doctrinally when it comes to salvation? Well, perhaps, but it doesn't seem to be a particular, uh, there's no indication that that was a particular need. There's no heresy or anything mentioned here. So my view as to why he writes the book of Romans, and this is this is an accepted view, though again, there's debate about this, but this is actually a letter of introduction from Paul to the church at Rome so that they can become ministry partners with him some people even describe it as a missionary support letter paul states his intention in the letter to want to come to rome and then go further with rome's with the church at rome's help but these people don't really know paul so rather than simply introducing himself he introduces his theology so that they can recognize him as a true apostle and support him this is kind of like this this is an introduction to me in my ministry and he presents a, a very thorough explanation of salvation. And you can see almost his thesis in chapter one of Romans. We'll go over to Romans now, so in front of the two books of Corinthians. Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. This is what really launches Paul's explanation of salvation. Romans one, verse 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, "But the righteous shall live by faith. Of course, what proceeds onward for the next 11 chapters or so is an explanation of those truths. Toward the end of the letter, though, you can see what I think is more evidence of Paul's underlying purpose behind all this. Look at Romans 16. Romans 16, verses 22 to 24. You can see what Paul's plans have to do with the church at Rome. Romans 16, verses 22 to 24. Oops, I think I went. one chapter too many. I think it's 15. Yes, Uh, 15. I'm sorry. Romans 15, verses 22 to 24. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul's intention is not only to be able to serve the people at Rome, but be helped by them to go to other places. So that's why I take my view that I do. Now, Paul writes Romans towards the end of his third missionary journey, but then Paul's put in prison. And such begin Paul's prison epistles. And first among them, or close to first among them, is the letter to the Ephesians. So This is written during Paul, Paul's first imprisonment. He's in Rome. He writes to the Ephesians. There is some debate into the exact nature of his audience. Is it just the Ephesian church, or is it an encyclical that includes the city of Ephesus? I won't go through the reasons why there's uh, supports for both sides, but there's a very strong tradition linking this letter to the church of Ephesus. It could really work either way. Um, The the meaning of the letter is not changed so much, whether it's encyclical or to a particular uh, fellowship at Ephesus. City of Ephesus, as, as you may remember, it's a it's another Roman capital, capital of the province of Asia. Another major city in the Mediterranean world of this time, only behind Rome itself and Alexandria. And Paul had been been at this church recently in his third missionary journey for about three years. Now, what is the purpose of Ephesians? It's another one that there's a lot of debate about because it's kind of difficult to tell. There's no specific problems really mentioned in the book. But there are, there are some concerns that he that he addresses. I would put the purpose of Ephesians in this way. It is to reassure Gentile believers about their salvation and about Paul's imprisonment. And in general, to exhort these new Gentile believers toward persevering godliness. Look at... Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 and following. So over to Ephesians now, Ephesians 2 19. You can see an example of how Paul affirms that the f- Gentiles are fully saved, full inheritors of salvation and blessing. Ephesians 2.19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Saying you have everything that Jewish believers have. You are full salvation inheritors. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. You see a reference here to his imprisonment. And he says in verse 13, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So there's some reassurance going on there. And then look at chapter four, verse one. Chapter four, verse one, as often we see in Paul's letters, he he deals with certain theological issues. And then he talks about application. What does it look like in your life? And verse one, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You Gentiles are truly saved but you are to walk in a way that matches that. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is is very similar to his letter to the Colossians. Also written in his first imprisonment, probably around the same time as the Ephesians. It's not exactly clear which one came first. The recipient of this letter is the church at Colossae, also in Asia, but another church that Paul himself never visited. Paul did have an indirect impact on this church, though. People there surely knew of him just as he knew of them because his ministry at Ephesus affected them and may have even resulted in the church's establishment. It's another church of mostly Gentile believers. Now, this many of the truths expressed in the letter to the Colossians are expressed in the book of Ephesians, but there's also that there's an additional problem at Colossae. There's a heresy there that seems to be attracting to people to some kind of necessary knowledge outside of Christ. You need this other... Secret knowledge. There seems to be also a return, a, an appeal to return to the Jewish law and ritual observances. So, describing the exact nature of this heresy is somewhat difficult. Was it a Jewish Gnostic hybrid? But whatever the case, of the heresy. Paul, in this letter, his purpose is to remind the Gentile believers of their full sufficiency in Christ. They don't need any extra knowledge. And to exhort them to a real holiness not a fake holiness that's merely external. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and following. Uh, right before Ephesians in our Bibles, I think. Go eat, no, no, a little bit later. Right after Philippians, Colossians 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So you can see there, he says, you don't need anything outside of Christ. You don't need any extra knowledge in terms of your spiritual salvation and equipping. And then look further, verse 16, uh, in the same chapter, you can see some of the application of this. Verse 16 to 18, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And he goes on. So he's saying, there's no reason for you to go back to these uh, this ascetic externalism. That's not, the, that's not the teaching of Christ. Now, this letter to the Colossians was probably delivered at the exact same time as the letter to Philemon also written during Paul's first imprisonment. Why do I say they were written together? Well, because in Colossians, the messenger appears to be a man named Onesimus, who is the man who's also central to the book of Philemon. The recipient of this book is a man named Philemon, who apparently was also at the church at Colossae. And he happened to own a slave named Onesimus. Now, we can't get into it now, but do recognize that slavery was a very large aspect of the Roman world as many as one-third of the population in the Roman Empire was enslaved in fact many Christians were slaves and some Christians were slave owners now, the Bible has th- some things to say about that not abolishing slavery but definitely uh, giving instruction as to what is a Christ-like relationship towards a master and towards a slave but it happened that this Onesimus ran away from his master the Onesimus was apparently an unbeliever But he ran to Rome, he encountered Paul, and he got saved. But now what do we do with this slave, this now Christian slave? Paul writes a letter to Philemon, and uh, probably the church at Colossae too, because there are greetings to other people in the church. And what what is he doing with this letter? Well, he entreats Philemon to forgive Onesimus, to accept Onesimus as a fellow brother in Christ, and to allow Onesimus to continue to serve with Paul in ministry. I would show you some verses, but I'm getting a little bit short on time, so let me keep moving on with these letters. The last of the prison epistles that Paul uh, sends out is the book to Philippians. So the, the city of Philippi, also during Paul's first imprisonment, probably a little bit later than the other prison epistles, maybe his second year in Rome. Church of Philippi was in Macedonia. Remember, it's that important city, colony of Rome, established during Paul's second missionary journey. Paul suffered persecution while he was there, but he was miraculously freed by God. Philippian church were special supporters of Paul. They sent him a gift while he was in prison. They clearly were concerned about him. Paul writes this letter back. And what's his purpose in writing it? He wants to exhort them to even greater gospel partnership by having them walk in joyful unity with each other amidst persecution. Now, if you know the book of Philippians, you know there's a lot there about joy, there's also a lot there about unity, because that apparently was an issue in the church. Even two people are called out near the end of the letter, and Sintiki, for not being unified with one another. And he says, help these women. These are my beloved sisters in Christ. Help them be united. And you, you church as a whole, be united against the persecution of the world. Because when you do that, you won't be overcome. So there's a lot in this letter about unity. But Paul eventually is released from prison. And his last three letters are written uh, after Paul's first imprisonment. The first, and these are all the pastoral letters, is 1 Timothy. This is written soon after Paul's release, probably around 63 AD. Paul's somewhere in the eastern Mediterranean. He had left Macedonia not too long ago, according to what's in the letter. And he writes to Timothy and perhaps also the church at Ephesus. Timothy was at Ephesus. You know, Timothy was Paul's companion picked up by Paul during Paul's second missionary journey, uh, a beloved um, co-worker. After Paul's release from his first imprisonment, he sent Timothy to Ephesus to take care of certain things on the apostle's behalf. And while Timothy is there, Paul writes this letter. It's not clear whether Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus with this letter or he just sent it to him afterwards. What's this letter about? It's to exhort, instruct Timothy and really the church with him to halt the influence of false teachers and set the Ephesian church in order. You can see that in the very beginning of chapter one, where he says, I urge you to stay in Ephesus, teach certain men, not to teach strange doctrines. And appoint, appoint elders that can protect the church, instruct the church. Very key in the book of 1 Timothy is a statement that appears in chapter three, verses 14 to 15, where he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. That is the assembly uh, or the church of God. This is a a church about, I mean, this is a letter about setting the church in order in Ephesus. And this is very similar to the letter to Titus. This is also written during Paul's um, last bit of journeying after his first imprisonment. Titus was another co-worker, companion of Paul. But Titus had been sent to the churches in Crete as Paul's representative. Not much is known about Titus except that he was a Gentile, um, and he was Paul's frequent partner. We see him mentioned throughout Paul's letters. Now, Titus is in Crete. It's not one that we hear about Paul visiting specifically in the book of Acts, but apparently some Christian missionaries went there. Some preachers went there. There were several churches on the island by this time. And what's Paul writing to Titus about? Just like First Timothy. He's, he's instructing and exhorting Titus along with the churches in Crete, to stop the false teachers and to set the church in order. It's a—it's almost like the letter opens the same way as Timothy does. 1 Timothy does. Paul says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains. Appoint elders. And then later on in that chapter, he says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers. They must be silenced. And that's why he writes this letter. But the final letter of Paul comes... When Paul is imprisoned again, and this is his imprisonment that leads to his martyrdom, 2 Timothy. Persecution arose against Christians in Rome after the fire of Rome in 64 A.D. Nero, the emperor, blamed the Christians and apparently persecuted Christians for the rest of his reign, which ended in 67 A.D., Uh, It doesn't appear that that persecution spread to the rest of the empire, but it was brutal in the city of Rome and around Rome. Many Christians killed, tortured, humiliated, and Paul was apparently rounded up as part of this persecution. And his tone is very different in this letter from his other prison epistles. He doesn't expect to be released. He expects to die. Uh, He he would end up dying in Rome, according to uh, what we know. But he writes to Timothy again, and Timothy may still be at Ephesus or somewhere else in the province of Asia, because Timothy had apparently become discouraged and hesitant to pursue the, the ministry that Paul had left him with. So Paul writes this letter to him to encourage and charge Timothy to carry on gospel ministry for Christ's sake, even after Paul departs. And again, I hope we don't have time to go through the, the, the verses, but you can see that. In chapter 1, where he says, uh, kindle afresh the gift of God that's in you. Don't be ashamed of me or the testimony of the Lord. And in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, very famously, he says, I charge you, preach the word in season and out of season. Because people, they're not going to want to just, or they're going to look for false teachers. You have to stay faithful. So in summary, the 13 epistles of Paul. I'm trying to give you kind of like their messages in a shorthand version. Galatians, salvation is by faith, not works. First Thessalonians, persevere, Jesus is coming. Second Thessalonians, keep going, he hasn't come yet. First Corinthians, let's talk about your church problems. Second Corinthians, accept me, your true apostle, and reject the fakes. Romans, here's an introduction to my gospel, Paul's gospel. Ephesians, you Gentiles are really saved but live like it. Colossians, Christ completes you, you Colossians, but also you live like it. Philemon, your slave is now your fellow minister. Accept him. Philippians, united you will stand with joy. First Timothy, secure Ephesus from false teaching. Titus, secure Crete from false teaching. And then second Timothy, keep preaching the word Now, you may be noticing some themes from these letters. And even if we had time, we can consider some of the other epistles. But there are some definite themes. There's a continued call throughout these letters for believers to live in holy perseverance. There's a continued call to contend against false teaching. There's a continued call to keep preaching the true gospel. a continued call to look to Christ. Find your, your full satisfaction and equipping in Christ so that you can follow him. Those things were necessary and true back then. And aren't they still necessary and true today? These are the same things that we need to hear. That's why we need these epistles. And we're going to investigate these further and investigate some of the themes of the epistles over the coming weeks. But there you have it. Quick tour through the epistles of Paul. Well, We're definitely a little bit over time, so let me close. Next week, we're going to consider one of those, those themes of differences between approaching Gentiles with the gospel and differences between approaching the Jews. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for the people at Calvary and I thank you for this word that you didn't leave us derelict, but you gave us the instructions so that we can be complete and have everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you, Lord, but please help us to, to hear and obey these words. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I know that was intense, but thank you and I'll see you next week.